thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand humans? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Now we have lots of questions coming in, so we'll uh, start with one that's come in by the text this time. It says, do stars inadvertently explode or are they harmless? And that's from M. Oh, must be 007. Thank you, M. <laughs> Not quite sure what she means by inadvertently. Um, stars do explode sometimes. You can predict rough, it tends to be near the end of their lifetime. There's a star relatively near to us, maybe about 600 light years away from us, called Betelgeuse, which is a very, very large star. It was originally an incredibly bright white star burning hydrogen into helium. Mm. And then it sort of ran out of hydrogen and it couldn't burn anymore, so it cooled down and collapsed a bit. And then it started burning helium, so it expanded a lot and it sort of blew off the surface. And at the moment, it's a big red giant. It might be burning helium or carbon or various different uh, materials in which it might be burning. Eventually, it runs out of elements which it can burn. This, this isn't burning in the case of lighting mm. match. This is mm. burning in the case of nuclear fusion. So you're kind of gluing these elements together into making heavier and heavier elements, which releases an immense amount of energy. Eventually it runs out of things it can burn and it just collapses to form a neutron star and that releases an immense amount of energy, sort of equals mc squared and it releases about a tenth of its mass. Einstein worked out, so a tenth of its mass is an immense amount of energy and it will produce an immense bang when it does go off. I talked about it a few weeks ago. So stars do explode, particularly the big ones. Um, even the sun will, might go off with a fairly small bang, but mm. not nothing like that. But you can predict roughly, it's always at the end of their lifetime, there's something like the sun is going to be very, very stable for the next several billion years. So they do go off bang, but you have some idea of predicting roughly when they're going to go off. Mm. And they're harmless or harmful? Depends how close you are to them. <laughs> um, if, I mean, Betelgeuse going off, if that went off bang, where we are now 600 light years away, mm. it would be impressive in the sky. It would be as bright as the full moon is, just a single point. Mm. And, you, I mean, you'd be able to walk around in the, mid, in the middle of the night if Betelgeuse was up. Um, even if it wasn't a moon, it would be that bright. But it's probably not going to do us any harm. If you, if it was, say, 50 light years away and you got hit, you get huge amounts of radiation, it could do odd things to the atmosphere. If you're very, very close to a very big, these big explosions called supernovae, if you're close to a big supernovae, it could even um, wipe out life on the Earth because you'd get so much radiation hitting the Earth. Crikey. But, but they're very rare. Oh, well, that's something. Dr. Dave from The Naked Scientist in the studio. And um, right now we want to go to the phones and say good evening to Alan. Hello, Alan. Hello, Sue. Hello there. You're through to Dr. Dave. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Dave. Hello, Alan. Nice to talk to you again. Andy. Um, basically, as long as I can describe this, then you, and you understand it. We might get somewhere. Uh, basically, it's about uh, mobile phones. 
Um, we've got mobile phones, and there's many different companies that produce them and uh, operate the systems. Yeah. But at some point, they all communicate at a central point for us to make a call to another phone, uh, which may not be of the same company. Is there a central point or computer that actually sorts out all those phones that are coming into it and redirects them to the phone that they're aiming for? I don't think there's one computer in one place, but there's certainly a whole set of different ones. Um, when you make a mobile phone call, essentially the signal gets converted into a radio signal, digital radio signal, send the information about what you're saying to the mobile phone base station. The signal then gets put into an optical fibre. So you've basically got a flashing um, infrared light down a long piece of glass um, that probably gets transferred around inside a optic fibre network for that carrier so your, your mobile phone company and then at various points they will have places where that, that connects in with other companies and so I, i'm pretty sure there isn't just one because if it went down then the whole country would be in trouble mm. but there's probably order of 10 or 20 of them around the country but um let's say for instance i'm going to make a phone call to scotland yeah would that go through several different communication points Could. if it does how can we speak so instantly I mean, it will certainly, it probably only goes between the um, carriers once, but it will be, it will go through lots and lots of different pieces of electronics between here and Scotland. And basically the reason why it's that instant is because everything works incredibly quickly. The information is being transferred by light, which travels at 300,000 kilometres a second. And that's a very small proportion of the delay. There is some delay, order of a hundredth of a second, maybe if it gets anywhere near a tenth of a second, it's very hard to carry out a conversation. Yes, um, it will go through a few, and it's just the information just travels so quickly that you don't notice a delay. Just finally, is it true that the waves or the radio waves or whatever it is from your phone are actually microwaves? Yes, they're not quite the same frequency as your microwave at home. But basically, microwave is a region of the electromagnetic spectrum. So light is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Radio waves are part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Mobile phones work in sort of two, three gigahertz. So that's a vibration in mm. of two or three billion times every second, and that's in the microwave region of the spectrum. So you couldn't, um, if you had a load in a room, all transmitting at once, it wouldn't cook a turkey. If you, in theory, they're not a frequency which is absorbed by water quite as well as the ones which you use in a microwave oven, but it will get absorbed. And if you had enough in one place and they were all transmitting at the same time, then you could, but a mobile phone transmits at maybe one or two watts, whereas a microwave is six or seven hundred watts, so you'd need several hundred phones all in a very small space. How scary is that? Don't try that at home, will you, Alan? (laughs) No. There was sort of an internet scare recently where some advertising company had made it look like mobile phones could make popcorn pop. What they've actually done is taken a microwave, taken it apart and put it under the desk and then turned it on so they're actually microwaving the popcorn on top of the desk um, when it was nothing to do with the mobile phones at all. Oh, well, there you go. So, Alan, thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you very Take much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, this time to the email, and um, it says, Hello, a few weeks ago you answered a science question for my big brother, Ben. We listen to your programme in bed and love it. Hello, Ben and Toby. I've been thinking hard of a question I'd like to ask you, and I would like to know, what does fluoride in toothpaste do? I hope you know the answer, Dr Dave. Love from Toby, who's age six, and he's got two sisters as well, and they're thinking of questions as well. Right, Toby, here comes your answer. <laughs> 
Okay, Toby, on the outside of your teeth, you've got um, a very hard material called enamel. That's a sort of shiny white stuff, which is very hard and very good for grinding up food and things. The problem is if you get any tooth decay, then that you get sort of acid from the plaque bacteria. They produce acid, and that tends to dissolve away the, the surface of this enamel. Now, if you have, if you drink lots of um, calcium and lots of things, things like milk, then bits of that can kind of stick back onto the surface and, and sort of essentially sort of plaster over the holes which you're making with all the plaque. And fluoride basically helps that process. Mm. So it helps to repair some of the damage which you get from general wear and tear on your teeth and by uh, black if you've got a really badly decayed teeth it's not enough to do it but if it, if they're in a pretty good condition it'll help to keep them that way so you've got to keep having your fluoride please ben thank you very much for your question all right let's go to one more here on the uh, email this is from dave uh, first of all he says cheapest car peugeot 205 glxd uh, also ran on vegetable so does my 206 best car i ever had Vegetables. All right, that's interesting. Let's go like the wind. Um, his question is, how come we find so many oil fields in small pockets so deep under the oceans? And how do we find so many oil fields under deserts? I have read stories about dry wells being replenished as well. Dave, can you shed any light? Um, okay, oil as far as basically is it's hydrocarbons. It's made by organic matter. So all of the squishy bits of plants and animals and sea creatures, if they get really buried very deeply, and then as they get crushed and crushed and over millions of years, and as they get moved close to the centre, slightly a bit close to the centre of the earth, they get warm, warmed up a bit and they get cooked, and that does all sorts of interesting chemistry. It drives off the water from them, leaving the carbon and the, and the hydrogen um, forming hydrocarbons. And the hotter they get cooked, the, the smaller the molecules end up. This oil then tends to, uh, if you're deep underground, everything tends to be saturated in water. So this oil floats on water. This oil tends to float, seep upwards. And it normally, most oil that's produced in the world just then escapes very slowly over millions and millions of years. Sort of escapes, seeps out of the ground in various places. And it then, so, um, bacteria eat it and it gets recycled eventually. However, if you happen to have somewhere with some rocks which will trap it, you can either do that by having rocks which are folded in such a way as you have a, water, a sort of waterproof or oilproof rock which is folded into a bit of a dome shape in the middle of the North Sea. It's actually done because there was lots of salt under the North Sea and salt is less dense than everything else. It tends to float upwards and you get these salt domes which create little traps at the sides of them which can trap lots of oil. And it gets trapped there and it slowly builds up until you get enough which it's economic to recover from un under there. And so you need, you need the two things. One of them, the reason why you get a lot of oil underwater is that lots of things get deposited underwater. Mm -hmm. So you, everything's get washed out of rivers with lots of organic material in it and then they get buried and they get buried very quickly so they don't get rotted down too quickly. And so you get lots of organic material buried underwater. So you've got lots of source rocks for oil. Um, and then you quite often get some good clay materials which make some nice trapping things. Then you get the quite unusual thing of the ground being somehow being changed in shape to form a, a dome-shaped oil trap, and that's what makes oil so rare. Why it's particularly in deserts, I'm not quite sure. Whether it's just it's easier to search for oil in deserts because there's less people to find it. <laughs> there's less people to get in the way. Yeah, people less so. people to complain when you drive around exploding um, great big lumps of explosive to um, seismically look for oil. Ooh. 
I think the Middle East is quite unusually unusual tectonically because it's sort of where various continents have collided. So all sorts of strange, um, the rock has been mashed up in all sorts of strange ways. I know in some bits of the Gulf, Persian Gulf, there's actually rocks which have been lifted up from incredibly deep, right under the sort of below the Earth's crust, have been lifted up onto the surface. So I'd have thought that the very interesting um, geology there will happen to mean there's a lot of oil trap there. Mm. I don't think there's anything fundamental why deserts are good for oil. There, there are there's fundamental reasons why under, underwater is good. But. Um, Mike says, by, by calling in, he says, um, I wonder what are optical brighteners and how do they work? An optical brightener, how does it work? Okay, an optical brightener is, as it says, is something which makes your clothes look brighter. People who, I mean, you get them in clothes, washing clothes, um, you get it in the fibres which make up quite a lot of white things, um, you get it in paper. They're all over the place. Basically, the, the manufacturers can't really make these things look perfectly white. They tend to look a bit yellowy. And people think, oh, my clothes are slightly yellowy. I don't want that. So what they do is they put these things called optical brighteners into the washing powders and into the fabrics themselves. When ultraviolet light from the sun hits them, ultraviolet light is a colour of light which your eyes can't actually see. It's just mm. beyond the violet in the spectrum. Mm. And when they hit it, the optical brighteners convert that ultraviolet light into visible blue light. And so you've basically converted invisible light into visible light. So the paper, look, the paper or the white shirt looks even brighter than it ought to and they're put in all sorts of things. They tend to be sort of organic molecules. There's lots of different ones. We look quite complicated. Organic molecules are made by chemical processes. And, yeah, they just make your clothes look brighter than they should do. Make them glow. Um, You get the same things in fluorescent pens, in highlighter pens. Oh, yes, yes. They convert this ultraviolet light into visible light, but with um, highlighter pens, instead of it always being this kind of pale, bluey colour, it can be orange or yellow or green pink or pink why not pink all right let's go to the phones again now we've got tony on the line hello tony hello hello tony, hello, tony. we've missed you i missed you i got you on the net though have you i did yes you look very nice with the red hair thank you <laughs> you try and chat me up tony <laughs> you're as pretty as you sound yeah. oh i'm flattered well you're through to the very handsome dr dave now no. what's your question right um, in space if you somehow manage you know, when the astronaut managed to break away from the uh, whatever he was doing out in out yeah. either, you know, is there any way he can get back? If basically, sort of, if he pushed himself off the spaceship and he started moving away from the spaceship, because there's nothing to push on in space, no, the yeah. only way he could change his speed would be to take something and throw throw it in the opposite direction. So uh, it's, it's how a rocket works. A rocket works by throwing hot gases in one direction. And Newton worked out that every action has an equal opposite reaction. Or how I like to say, if you push something, it pushes you back. And so if the astronaut, I don't know, had some tools on him or something. Without an aerosol. An aerosol would work beautifully as well. But, I mean, that, that's a rocket. Um, the aerosol pushes gas out one way. And so he would get pushed back the other way. Oh, lovely. And so, yeah, you need something to push on. If if you're floating in midair, then you could push on the air with a fan or by waving your arms around. But in space, there's nothing to push on, so you've got to take it with you. So you'd have to throw something on your person away. We eat plenty of beans. <laughs> that would work too. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor. Thanks, Tony. Tony, lovely to hear from you. Take care. Bless you. Bye-bye. 
If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. Now, Mike has said that um, he's uh, potting it, shilling his shoes because he's got to be presentable for Sue Marchant's big night in. Um, but what happens to shoe polish when you put it on? It's dull and waxy, but then the more you rub it, the more shiny it gets. Why is this? Good question. Okay. I think it's basically to do with how smooth the surface is. When you put the shoe polish on to start with, it's still quite, uh, it hasn't dried out yet. It's quite a soft um, wax. That means that it, um, as you put it on with the cloth or whatever, it's quite rough. And this means if light shines onto it, although the surfaces themselves are quite reflective because it's such a rough surface, light gets bounced off in all sorts of different directions. And so it doesn't act like a mirror, it just acts like a matte, dull surface. Basically, light goes in all directions. Whereas if you, once it dries out a bit and you give it a good polish, you sort of knock off all the lumps and you smooth it out and you get a very smooth, waxy surface. And this means that if light come, bounces at it from one direction, all the light which is coming from the light bulb, whatever, will all bounce off in one direction, so it all ends up in your eyes and it starts to behave a bit like a mirror, just basically because as you polish it, it gets smoother and smoother. If you take a mirror and smash it and make the surface all rough, then it will look white. Because if you, if you imagine a, a sheet of glass, mm. um, you get a nice reflection off a sh- smooth sheet of glass. But if you grind it up into a powder, each flat piece of the glass will reflect just as well as the smooth piece. But because they're all reflecting in different directions, you can't see a picture in it. All right, interesting stuff. Now, John in Peterborough, here's a good one for Dave's lightning brain. Um, he says, how much extra does the Earth weigh in comparison to 2,000 years ago now that we have all the roads and buildings, etc.? Good one, John. Dave. Well, if it's certainly with respect to things like roads and buildings, um, the first question is where did the stuff come to make the roads and the building? Where did it come from? And that's out the ground. Right. So, um, so you, you take it out of one bit of the earth. All you're doing is shuffling stuff around, which is on the earth already. And so it's not going to affect the mass of the earth at all because you're just kind of moving stuff from one hole into a building or into a road. The only thing which will affect how much the Earth weighs is if the Earth is losing stuff into space or if stuff is coming in from space and landing on the Earth. And you do get... The atm- some of the atmosphere is lost to space all the time, the sort of plume of atmosphere which is knocked off of what's called the solar wind, which mm. is high-energy particles streaming out of the sun and it kind of they drag bits of the atmosphere, very, very upper atmosphere off very slowly. And also you get lots of little meteorites hitting the Earth very slowly. I'm not quite sure which of these two effects is bigger, so whether the Earth is getting more massive or less massive over time. It was gaining weight or losing weight, but building roads and buildings doesn't affect the mass of the Earth at all. Well done, Dr Dave. Mike, the taxi driver. Hello, Mike. He says, when he was a child, his granddad told me when lightning strikes, if you count the seconds until the thunder rumbles, every second is representative of a mile. Is this true, and where does this come from? Do you know, Mike, I've been wondering that myself. Dr Dave. 
Almost, very nearly. Um, okay, if you've got, basically when the lightning goes off, um, you get a huge spark running down from the cloud down to the earth, you get a huge amount of electricity travelling through the air. That makes the air immensely hot, probably tens, hundreds of thousands of degrees centigrade. When you make a gas very hot, it expands, it's got lots of energy, expands, and that shakes the air around you. And so the thunder and lightning both created at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, now the light from the lightning travels at 300,000 kilometres a second. It essentially gets your eyes instantaneously. But sound travels at about 300 metres every second, um, which means that if you're 300 metres away, you'll see the um, a lightning strikes, then you'll see the lightning immediately, but it will take a second for the thunder to get to you because the sound travels slowly. If you're a kilometre away, it would take three seconds. If you're a mile away, it would probably take about five seconds. So for every five seconds, if it takes five seconds for the sound to get to you, then you're a mile away. So almost right. Mm. All right, so it is true. Okay, we've got loads of questions coming in. Uh, First of all, Michael Barnes says, Dr. Dave, would you accept your own TV programme if offered? It would be an interesting experience. So that's a yes then. (laughs) Yeah, I think it would be an interesting experience. Thank you for that. All right, I'll be your agent and negotiate. Be <laughs> Sounds 20, good to 25%, me. 25%, all right? I need the money. <laughs> now then, um, uh, one here that says, um, when we say a star is 100 light years away, does it mean that it takes 100 years for the light from that star to reach us? If that's the case, if I looked up to the sky tonight and saw that star, would I be seeing it as it was 100 years ago? And how do we know that if uh, that star hasn't blown up 50 years ago and so in theory it's not there anymore but we still see it good um question. good question and entirely right in all of his thoughts yes a lot if it, something's 10 light years away that means the light has the it takes 10 years for light to travel that distance and as far as we know no information can travel faster than light so if something is 100 light years away and it blew up 99 years ago we have no way of knowing that until the light gets here to tell us and it was uh, we were discussing Betelgeuse, mm. and it, uh, mm. recently it's been changing size. Mm. The star six hundred light years away, and if it has gone bang at any point in the last six hundred years, we have no way of telling until the light gets here. Mm. Now, Tony HGV says, um, Doctor Dave, why is biodiesel only okay in some cars, and why does it thicken in cold weather? Normal diesel doesn't. I think normal diesel does thicken in cold weather a bit. Um, I know I've heard stories of Russians having to set fire, um, light fires under their diesel engines to get them hot enough. Yeah, it's um, really to, cold in Russia. In the middle of the winter, it gets really cold, and in order to stop the diesel getting so cold that it kind of, if you get diesel very, very cold, it kind of solidifies into a sort of waxy lump because basically the molecules, they're attracted to each other weakly, and if you get them cold enough, they're not vibrating hard enough to be able to move past each other, and they sort of lock up and form a kind of waxy mess, and they can't flow into your engine. So normal diesel will sort of stop working in very cold temperatures. Biodiesel tends, it's not just a pure hydrocarbon. Um, pure normal diesel is just made out of hydrogen and carbon. Biodiesel's got a little bit of oxygen in it, and that will tend to cause some areas of the molecule to be slightly positive. The oxygen area is probably slightly negative, and this means that the molecules will tend to attract each other slightly more strongly than a straight hydrocarbon. So they'll attract one another um, more, more than the hydrocarbon, so they'll basically freeze up and go waxy at higher temperatures. Um, and so it doesn't have to get as cold before you start hitting problems. 
I'm not quite sure why some engines aren't very good with it. I'm guessing it has slightly different properties. You might need to change the, the timing. It might produce some slightly more nasty byproducts when you burn it, which could, could damage engines. But if anyone knows, I'd be interested to find out. Mm, all right, me too. If you're interested, then I'm interested. Now, Adrian from Wickham Market says, with the emergence of more wind farms, could you please explain how the wind is converted into usable energy? Uh, thank you very much. How does it work, Dr. Dave? How does it work? Okay, basically, the wind turbine, it's basically a big propeller. If air blows past the propeller, it causes the propeller to spin. You then got uh, you can then attach that to an axle, which is turning. You then attach that to what's known as a generator. Basically, if you move a magnet near a coil of wire, you cause a voltage in that wire. And so basically, in the generator, you've got a load of magnets. They might be electromagnets, depending on the design of the generator, which move near coils of wire. As they move near the coils of wire, that causes electric current, uh, voltage in those wires. And then if you let electric current flow through them, then you can, you've got power. And you can just plug that into the national grid using appropriate transformers and cutting bits of electronics to make it all work. All right, let's go to the phones this time now. Hello, Peter. Hello there. How are you? All right, very well. The dog sounds all right as well. I've got a question to ask. It's, it's relevant to a previous question. Okay. Okay. When we stand on the equator, the Earth's going round at what? A thousand miles an hour, shall we say? Okay, yeah. So when a fighter pilot flies and he goes through G force, he needs protective clothing or, or he yep. needs this. So when we stand on the equator, we're travelling at nothing. Or No, when we stand on the poles, yeah. we actually travel at nothing. So we've obviously got some sort of protection at a thousand on the equator. So when we stand on the pole, does it work in, in reverse? Or uh, This is basically why do, why do the why jet pilots we... need such um, protection to fly at a thousand, but if you're standing on the equator, then and it's... I mean, all, all we're wearing is skin. Yeah. Um, the reason why jet pilots need all the special equipment for doing a thousand miles an hour isn't the doing a thousand miles an hour. It's going around corners at a thousand miles an hour. Concorde went about as fast as most jet planes, but it did it in a straight line. And so the accelerations are very small. The problem that a jet pilot has is when you go around a corner, he's changing direction very quickly. And if you're going very fast, you change direction very quickly. That means the acceleration is huge. And uh, the force equals your mass times your acceleration. So if you go around a, a corner very fast, very quickly, there's huge forces on you, which pulls the blood out of the pilot down to his feet. And then, then the brain can't get enough blood, and, it, and the uh, pilot's black out, and you get all sorts of havoc. Um, whereas if you're standing on the equator, you're doing a thousand miles an hour. If you only go round, you're going round, you are going round in a circle, but only once every day. So you're, the speed you're changing direction is very, very small. And that it does have an effect. What it what it does that that acceleration does have an effect. It tends to you get something effectively centrifugal force, which kind of throws you up a little bit, and it reduces your your weight by less than a percent. And that is measurable. But because you're going around the corner very very slowly, it's not a very big effect, and so you don't notice it. So what would happen if you took somebody from the equator and put them onto the poles then? Then they would get less than a, maybe a tenth of a percent heavier. Because they're not being, but other than that, other than getting very cold, not a lot. Would it affect them? Oh, if you suddenly change their speed, yes. 
short term, it would affect them. Like yeah, it would be like driving... If you, if you made them stop, if you took someone moving at 1,000 miles an hour from the equator and stopped them immediately, it'd be a bit like driving to a brick wall at 1,000 miles an hour. Question <laughs> um, answered. Um, but if you slowed them down slowly, then, again, they wouldn't notice. It's all about change... The, the, the problem is changes of speed. Um, the actual speed you're going at um, actually has no effect on you. It's, it's how quickly you're changing speed oh, or changing change velocity. Hmm. Peter. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, Jim in March says, um, why do aircrafts leave smoke trails behind them and what is the reasoning for this? OK, Jim, um, there's a couple of reasons. Um, with some old planes, um, you do actually get black smoke trails because their jet engines aren't very e- efficient. They don't burn all of the jet fuel and they leave a load of um, soot, basically. And you basically get um, smoke coming out the back of them and you get a load of black smoke out the back. But what you normally see is the trails. There's two things that can be. The one you see most often is that when you burn jet fuel, hydrocarbon, contains carbon and hydrogen, when you burn that with oxygen, it produces, and the carbon burns from carbon dioxide, and the hydrogen burns from water. So the jet engines are burning an immense amount of fuel very quickly. That produces really quite a lot of water. This water gets dumped into a very cold, a cold atmosphere when you're high up. And the cold, and then it, the air can't hold it because it's very, very cold, and the water condenses to form little droplets, and that's what you see as a cloud. Uh, basically, you see a little cloud forming behind the plane. You can also form um, trails not without the jet engines at all. If you're in air which is al- almost forming a cloud, there's a lot of moisture in it. Um, and at the um, wings, uh, underneath the wings, you've got a very high pressure, and above them, you've got a very low pressure, which is what's pushing you up. And so the air tries to get around the top of it, and as it gets around the top of it, it starts to spin, and you get a sort of a vortex, a spinning air off the end. Centrifugal force pushes the air, sort of throws the air outwards from the centre of those. So the centre of them, the air the pressure goes down, the air expands, and it gets colder, and you can get um, uh, moisture condensing in these sort of spinning um, trails of air off the cons of the wings. Um, which can be quite pretty. But, yeah, there's various means, but those are two of them. It's not it's not deliberate. There's no, no one does it on purpose. Right. Now, Pat in Lowestoft says, when you phone your bank, you have to give a reference number. I wondered, now people are getting so advanced with technology, is it possible that someone could listen in on these conversations and steal your details? I mean, in some in some ways, this has been possible um, forever. I mean, people have been been able to kind of walk up to your phone line and attach to attach a wires and actually physically tap your phone, and so people have been able to do that ever since phones have been invented. Uh, mobile phones, it certainly is possible to hack into. In fact, there was a there's a big scandal been recently where a newspaper was hacking into all sorts of people's mobile phones and then in order to find exciting things about the royals and they're still getting in trouble with it now several years afterwards. So it's certainly possible, definitely mobile phones. Whether it's very common, I don't I don't have any knowledge. I would think the bank would take exceptional um, precautionary I'm, I'm, measures. I'm fairly sure that if anyone did it, they'd yeah, be in trouble. They would indeed. Now then, uh, Andy, um, he says, uh, in the car heading home, hope you're well. Yes, thank you very much. On the subject of the universe, it's ex- accepted that the universe is expanding. But what into... What into? Yes. Um, if we look in every direction, um, the further we look away, the further things seem to be moving, the faster things seem to be moving away from us. Generally, people, um, they accept the, the view is by scientists that the universe isn't expanding into anything. It's just all getting bigger. 
so the universe is just getting bigger. So it, imagine uh, it's a bit like if you've got a balloon, you imagine drawing some galaxies on a balloon, and then they start off very close together when the balloon isn't inflated. Then when you inflate the balloon, then the galaxies get further apart because space is expanding as well. So as far as we know, the universe started, uh, although everything was closer together because there was less space and the universe originally started off smaller. All right, we might be able to squeeze these last few in here. Uh, Gerald says there is an infinite number of stars in the universe, yet the night is dark. Why? That is a wonderful, really fundamental question. Um, and it's because the universe is expanding. If the universe wasn't expanding, it wouldn't be the case. Um, if if you cycle, if you're driving past, uh, if you're driving away from something, if if, if you're, oh yeah, sorry, if a siren, a police car is moving towards you, the pitch is quite is increased and it's getting higher pitched. As it moves past you, the pitch suddenly drops, and as it's going away from you, the pitch gets lower. This is called the Doppler effect. When things move away from you, their wavelength tends to increase because the universe is expanding and things a long way away from us are moving away very very quickly. That means that the wavelength of the light is increased, and it's increased so much that we can't see it. So although if you look in any direction, you should see something which was originally very, very hot, the light and really, really white light coming off it, um, because the universe has expanded so much, the light has been stretched, and it's no longer visible, and now it's virtually in the microwave region. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 